0: patreon.com slash playvolutionhq or click the link in the show description to learn more. Welcome to Early Learning Journeys. I'm Jeff Johnson here with Tamar Jacobson. Tamar, we've got another vi- I mean guest, not victim. Uh we get another guest <laughs> to interview about their journey through the early learning world. Who's with us this week?
1: This is Steve Zvolak. Uh, and he's a dear old friend and a colleague. Um, I met him in at NAEYC many years ago. He came with one of his people from the the the, the UCCC, which he'll describe in a minute. Um, and they came to me because they were reading my book in their in a book group, and they wanted to know if I was the real deal and if they could bring me out to St. Louis. And so I went out to see their childcare center and to present with them, with his, all his staff. And it was it was like a dream center that I had been dreaming oh. about for a long, long time. Um, and the focus, which I was so excited about, was uh, the emotional development of children and of, also of the staff, which is what I'm all about. Yeah. And so, uh, it, it well, you know, you know, I I'm married happily and stuff, so I, I'm not allowed to fall in love with Steve. But I <laughs> fell in love with him for what he was doing and what he always does for children. But there's a lot more that we can find out from him. So,
0: so I'm Steve- so happy. Steve, welcome to the show. Um, we like to start our our stories of people jer- people's journeys at the beginning. So, where wh- where where were you born? What what do you remember about the early years? What was life like? And then bring us into how you got into working with children, and and uh, we'll jump in with questions as we go along.
2: Yeah, well, well, uh, Jeff, that is, I, I I so appreciate where you. Uh, would like to start because often when you tell people when, when you ask somebody you know what's your story they say well i went to i went to uh, Rider university and i graduated with and that's not part of the why you know so part of the why starts in infancy absolutely and so i i so appreciate that and uh you know what i what what people see today is truly um uh, um an output from what my first, my early learning was like, my early family experiences, my family of origin. And uh, uh, I grew up in Philadelphia and um, I was definitely a have not. Um, and um, I had an interesting family experience. Uh, and I'll, I'll say it this way. I, those of you who are familiar with ACE scores, I have an ACE score of six so you can understand, um, the trauma that I, I, I experienced.
1: Uh, perhaps and, you could, perhaps you could sp- expand on that a little, Steve, because I don't know if everybody knows what that is. Well,
2: you know, a score it, it's, you know, it's a, a mechanism for, for measuring early trauma in children and, uh, in, in people. And it's a one to 10 score. The higher your score, the more traumatized you've had, you, you've experienced more trauma, you experienced. And, uh, and frankly, anything over a, a four, a score of four or more, it really uh, they they've been able to tie in long-term health outcomes um, and uh, with with that with that trauma. And so, if four is a a marker for uh, long-term health outcomes, uh, negative health outcomes, I have a six. And and the measurements uh, that the traumas include uh, physical, sexual, uh, physical abuse, emotional uh, abuse and neglect, uh, families uh, members that are incarcerated, drugs, alcohol, divorce. Uh, there's so there's a litany of ten items, and the scoring mechanism is just one to ten. So um, I have a an interesting uh, trauma history, and. And, and I have such clear memories. When I was five years old, I was standing on the front stoop. You know, I lived in, in, in the city and there was all the brownstones with the shared stoops. And I remember the jacket I was wearing it had this fur collar. It was a pan me down. It was supposed to be blue, but it was purple. And it had this embroidered here. But I stood on the stoop on this cold winter, sunny day and said to myself, I'm out of here. I am out of here, and um, and and I and I learned how to be a real survivor. You know, uh, at six years, six and seven, I was selling pretzels up and down the streets of Philadelphia. I was very industrious because I had to be.
0: Where, just technically, where does a six or seven year old in Philadelphia get pretzels to sell? <laughs>
2: When you, when you when you went to the pretzel factory and okay. you watched you watch them being made, and I would borrow two dollars and I would get twenty pretzels, and I would sell them for a nickel a piece. And I had my little beer box with my uh, um, uh, kitchen t- my kitchen uh, towel and tin foil and my mustard. And the knife in the car gated. And I would run up and down the streets yelling, fresh pretzels, he already fresh pretzels. And you would hustle from factory to factory to try to sell your your 20 pretzels. And then you'd go back and get some more. So I was very industrious and figured out how to survive, not just uh, emotionally and and socially, but uh, economically. Uh, I, I, I did all sorts of interesting jobs as a kid that most six and seven year olds, I I look at my grandson now and go, God, his life is so much easier. Um, so I was running around the streets and trying to find ways to stay away. I would get up and out of my house as early as I could. And I would go back as late as I possibly could. And um, I became a basketball jock, and I used basketball as my tool for safety. I became a baseball uh, fanatic, and, and so I did everything I could do to stay out of, the, um, out of my household. Uh, uh,
0: in, those, in those early years, aside from the, the sports, was there, was there time to play, or was it all work?
2: I, I played really hard and my playground were interesting. I climbed rooftops, I shimmied up, um, uh, rain spouts. Um, I was fairly, and, and very mischievous. So play was very different. It wasn't about playgrounds. It was about rooftops and going into abandoned buildings and playing fort, uh, playing army and, uh, you know, climbing trees. It was my, it was an urban playground.
1: Uh, Steve, where did you get ideas to play fort and army? I mean, because television wasn't probably
2: the way you learned. No, but, you know, I, I think intuitively, you know, as a six and seven year old, you know, you want that kind of power and you're trying to, and you're looking for a community from a developmental perspective from 7 8 and 9 you're looking for cl- you're looking for clicks you're looking for teams you're looking for social connections differently because the you know the first 5 years of life are so turbulent for children i mean you're forming your i mean the formative years that is that's an understatement for the intensity of what goes on in those first 5 years of life and after you have that consolidated the best way you can then you go out into the world and start testing it, whether that's with teams, dance, whatever it was. So if, if there is something that kind of sounded similar to me was that movie, that Stephen King movie, Stand By Me,
0: mm-hmm.
2: th- you, you hung out. And you just did things and created things. And, and again, I was pretty innovative because I had to be innovative. So playgrounds did not, you know, playgrounds were for baseball and basketball. It wasn't for climbing equipment. Uh, Again, we would leap, we would leap over rooftops. I I think about it, I guess, sweaty bombs. uh, Some of the things that we did as young kids. And, um, and I grew up in one of the toughest neighborhoods in Philly. It was a really a tough uh, white slum um, at Kensington, it was a beautiful place. It was an interesting community, but it wasn't, it was pretty basic and the drug and uh, the drug use in my neighborhood was so enormous. And um, as I, as i grew up you could start seeing people peeling off into different um, arenas and i got to be friends with all the different collections so i had my druggy friends i had my drinking friends i had my the athletic friends i had the the smarties but i was not a smarty i i was a mischief maker um, yeah,
0: how how old were you at this time
2: uh this is between my uh like 7 through uh, from seventh through high school was mm-hmm. really kind of fascinating. Um, I, as a, when I entered school, I was virtually uh, selectively mute in school. I never said anything. I tried to stay under the radar. And in my first grade class, there were 103 children with one nun in my oh. classroom. Wow. Okay. And my name was Zvolak. So I sat in that very back row and I, and she, she taught by walking up and down, up and down the uh, aisles hitting each desk with her pointer.
0: Jeez. Oh,
2: so I tried to stay under the radar and, and I realized that nothing was ever going to happen if I stayed under the radar. And by second grade, I was very mischievous. It really came out and the, I was labeled Lucifer, and it wasn't a term of endearment in a Catholic school.
0: What does mis? Give us an example of what mischievous looks like for you at that age. What What were you up to?
2: Um, I, I mean, I, lighting God, <laughs> lighting fires, climbing on roofs. Uh, doing what wasn't supposed to be done. I did not walk in a straight line in school.
1: So were you punished a lot?
2: Oh, oh, the punishment in, in elementary school was just horrific. Kneeling on floor grates, kneeling on rice, holding Bibles out, putting your nose against the wall. Um, I mean, it was, you know, you, getting paddled was easy. Um, the, um, but it my 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 second grade teacher, her name was Miss Margaret. And I loved Miss Margaret. I mean, she really connected with me. And she kept me after school. I kept getting into mischief. And she would keep me after school every day. And one day she finally said, Swolak, get out of here. And she would not let me stay after school. And I fought to, to stay after school. Oh, I could I could feel this one. Whoops. And I would try to get back into that classroom because she cared. She knew, oops, sorry.
1: That's okay. That's okay. She
2: she knew me really well, well enough to know that she was just enabling me. And so once I, she locked the door and would not let me in. And I was so discouraged. But the next day when I came to school, she asked me to do jobs that I would have done after school, during school. He's as well, like go out and clap the erasers for me, will you? She trusted me to do these jobs, and I had a love affair with her because it was a really a beautiful attachment. She got me; she figured it out, and I, 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 I keep trying to find her because she will never fully understand what she did because she did hold my soul, and I had i was pretty brokenhearted.
0: If, uh, so, for if for some reason she stumbled upon this uh this podcast recording what would you want to tell her
2: oh my god y- you you saved my life you gave me the nugget whoops of goodness that has enabled me to do my work because I get the chance to see children I can really see traumatized children really well you know you spot it you got it yeah, I can see it. I can see them really well. I have high empathy scores if I want to put it in a in a framework like that. I have a high empathy score in every assessment I take. So, when as a teacher, I could just feel the children who needed me differently. I didn't fully understand it, but you know, now I have a deeper understanding and this is what we are teaching, helping teachers understand. What is it? that you love about that child? What is it that you don't like about that child? Because it's often something inside of you. So I got to, she gave me the nugget to fully understand that there was something special inside this Lucifer that really carried me through school. And and I carry Lucifer as a badge of courage. Uh,
1: Steve, is she the reason you went into teaching? Or was she just your lifesaver emotionally?
2: I think she was more of a lifesaver. Um, getting into teaching, you know, you know that if I, had to, if I had to talk about my why, which is where we're leading to, right. my why is I will never let a child experience what I experienced. It's that simple. <laughs> it's that simple.
1: And that's where we can do a high five because that's where I'm similar to you. So do a high five. Thank you.
2: Yep, I will. I won't let it happen. And um, and in in early childhood, we have we we are actually we're gathering data on teachers uh, a scores on teachers, and the data that we have probably on about a thousand about thousand pieces of data a uh, a scores of teachers. Sixty um, percent of the teachers that we have scores on are highly traumatized.
1: That's so interesting.
2: So how can we expect a highly traumatized teacher to work with traumatized children?
1: Steve, who is we in the research? Well, I know uh, that's going to come later, but I think because it came up now, can you? Yeah, um,
2: you know, Loom Institute, you know, I am the executive director of... Uh, University City Children's Center, which is a, a school for about 165 children, birth through uh, five years, uh, six years of age. And then we have a, another organization called Loom Institute. So that is the vehicle for, um, for expanding um, the concepts around the emotional development. So we practice it at the school. And we take new concepts and we work it and we play with it. And, and then Loom Institute goes out and teaches other teachers how to be emotionally responsive. And um, so when people are talking about uh, social emotional development, I, in my, cynic- my cynicism, I say it's not social emotional development because they usually say it as one word. It's emotional development and social development. If children are physically safe they and then they are emotionally safe and they have an emotional partner, then they can socialize knowing that they have an emotional partner. And if they have those pieces consolidated, then they're ready for learning differently because they will be risk takers knowing that there are people there to support them. And that's what's so critical for teachers can lay that foundation and we have to lay that foundation for parents. So parents can be that same, that same emotional partner with children. So, so the, we is, is university city children's center and loom Institute. Okay. And and we have partners around the country that we're working with to elevate their thinking uh, in how to be, how to embed in your culture, emotionally responsive practices, starting
0: with, yourself that look in the mirror we have to back to your to. look in the mirror though you're in second grade you've got this amazing teacher who who is your life preserver your lifesaver um what happens when you leave her classroom
2: right uh, that was that was really fascinating because uh i my my mischief ratchet, ratcheted up and I was constantly looking for uh, other emotional partners, which I ended up finding through sports and through my friends. I hung, I hung around with some of the seediest folks, but they were the most loyal to me. I, as I grew up and got into adolescence, I was the only non-heroin user. I was their protector. I used to make sure that their works, I would hide their works for them, uh, their needles and their uh, cooking spoons. And, and uh, I never got into that. Why? I, and everything else. I don't know. You know, we have these funny, it was about conscience, how I develop conscience. I, I'm not, I, I, there's so many unanswered questions inside myself that I'm still searching for. You know, I've been on the earth for you know 68 years and I'm still searching for some of the answers. I'm, I' you know we know that children will find um, um, uh, attachment figures. Uh, uh, you know teachers are typically transitional or uh, uh, transitional love objects for children. But today they are a lot of our teachers are now love objects, the primary love objects for children. So I and we know that children will go and seek and find, Get that need met. I th- believe that I grabbed pieces from special people mm-hmm. and created a mother. It was a, a baseball coach, a basketball coach, um, a teacher. Um, you know, so I think I collectively created my my attachment figures and my love objects um, to help me go through and. There were so many from different genres, I, I would, so many. I would say there were probably about five people that I can identify that really meant something. And I think I call on them. I call on that spirit when I need it, which gives me the ability to play in a lot of different spaces. So to, to talk with corporate um, uh, leaders, I can do that well. To talk to philanthropic um, uh, givers, I can do that well to talk with teachers, I do that well. So I have lots of different, um, the, the, the the threads that have been braided for me enable me to do more than I am even aware of, I think. So I keep searching for
1: that. You know, I I always say that I, <coughs> I survive from the kindness of strangers. And um, it's interesting how you describe your strangers, Not so strange, but,
0: I mean, why do they help us out? Yeah. Yeah, Do do you think think any of those people knew they were having that huge impact on you?
2: No. No. I, you know, and that's why, you know, as as a teacher and as an educational leader, I think it's all about the nuances. We don't know. And, you know, when you talk to teachers and you ask what's their – you know, where their strength is, and they talk about, oh, I can do a group time. Well, group times are, you know, I, 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 my language. You can sometimes. use whatever
0: language you want on the show. Okay, <laughs> All right. uh, uh,
2: You know, it's bullshit. It's how we get our children queued up for it. Who's, how do the how did you know, it's about the first five minutes and the last five minutes of a day. A teacher needs to hold the soul of that child when they walk in. And everything else in between until the end of the day is just activities and muck. (laughs) But when children leave at the end of the day, they need to know that they're leaving, that somebody loves them as they're leaving. I mean, it's a therapeutic hour. It's the first five minutes of therapy and the last five minutes out of the critical. Everything else is, is bullshit in the middle. (laughs) And, And so you know, we, we so looking at, you know, when you go back, go back to the question, do they really know? I don't think they really knew, but what they gave me in a very nuanced way was a sense of belonging. I felt cared for. And they often gave me the power to make decisions. And they were people who were present for me, who connected with me. And then began to advance a relationship. When a coach pulls me over and says, "Steve, you know, I, I was a catcher, and I kind of directed all all traffic, and I was really good at in baseball at that. And I was a point guard in basketball, and I, was, and I had good vision. And um, they would come over and ask my opinion. So you know how? Oops, I could go down that pathway. You know how important that was <laughs> to ask me." an eight year old a nine year old a thirteen year old my opinion on how we're going to navigate the game and um and i've have found myself attracted by people who who enable me for good um i'm a i'm a I, I have a a good radar for people who are not who are not going to be kind to my not going to be kind to me and aren't going to hold my soul. And uh, so, you know, and, and
1: that's an expression, you know, that we can, that we could sort of put up with uh, quotation marks, hold my soul, right? Hold, soul. hold children's souls. That is such yep. a beautiful expression.
2: Well, and and we have so many heartbroken children right now. When you have a three-year-old and this is, this is, this is fact for us. We have three-year-olds walk into a building and say, put me down, you fucking bitch. Three-year-old. That's not a three-year-old. That is a heartbroken little baby who knows nothing else. And 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 we and we have teachers who go, Don't you use that language here, however they say that, because it is their baggage. So what we help teachers understand is. When you walk into the classroom, you're bringing your normal into the classroom. And you're trying to normalize 18 children to your normal. When you have an ACE score of four or more, what makes your normal okay? So how do we help teachers understand what their normal is? What baggage they bring into the classroom so they can they can begin to not only Hold the souls of the children in their classroom, but there's a reciprocity for the children holding their souls and giving them grace and forgiveness. So you see, see, Jeff, why I'm so excited because there are my books, which
1: is like theory, and he's practicing it. He's
0: practicing practicing what you preach. (laughs) Amen. Sorry
1: sorry to interrupt. Continue. It's fascinating. Uh,
2: No, it is, it is, uh, you know, I I get very concerned. How
1: you went from all of that to becoming, working with children, what actually practically made you take on the job?
2: Well, it's so weird. I mean, it is weird. Uh, You know, I went through, I, I, as I navigated through um, elementary school, went up through eighth grade and boy, are there some interesting stories in there. And then I went into a a high school where there were 3,500 men Catholic high school and, um, and I just got lost. So the only way I could be found or have a sense of something was to elevate my, my mischief. And, um, and I, although I didn't play high school sports because I had my first knee surgery when I was 13, I didn't play high school sports because I was always injured, but I, I, became kind of like a cheerleader. And I became like the guy who would walk the edge. I'd stand on top of the bus. I'd go out in the middle of the field. I would just, I was looking for my presence. And I was constantly putting myself out there looking for approval. Are you going to like me? And, and I would still say, I still do the same thing. It's part of my brand. It's still the same, the same story, but I have a different intentionality to the story today than I did then. And I spent more time, my educate, my high school education was about getting a sense of belonging. It wasn't about academics. I had like a 1.5 when I graduated. And I was in the bottom fifth of my class. And I truly, I was told I was dumb all my life. You, you're not going to do it. You're not going to succeed. You're not, you know, it was just a litany of things, although from the educator types. But I had street smarts and, and I, I, I can, I, I still have good street smarts.
0: So, so and, high school was a, a social experience more than an academic experience?
2: Yeah, Absolutely. And I and how I got to college, I just happened to be talking to one of my college counselor, and there were certain high school people who just really liked my mischief. I mean, they liked my edge. I mean, I was a fun felon. Okay, I didn't cross the line, and and I was a fun felon. And they like my mischief. And this one, one college counselor, he said, Steve, there is a small school in, in the Midwest that is just going from an all-girls finishing college to a co-ed college. I had no idea what he was talking about. And I said, well, let me take a look at it. I also had an opportunity to uh, try out as a walk-on for Temple University in basketball. But I knew if I stayed in Philadelphia, I probably would have died uh, sooner. Because the the life expectancy of my friends, you know, by the time I was a sophomore in high school, uh, college, seven of my dear friends died from overdoses or gunshots. So I know that world. And so I went to this small finishing school out in in Columbia, Missouri, called Columbia College. And I was the first um, group of male students and there were 24 of us. And we had our own fraternity because we were all uh, an anomaly in this weird experience. And but I also found out that um, I had much more power than I realized. I got involved with campus government. I I was I got involved with all the uh, uh, camp uh, the dorm leadership. Uh, I was the first male in their dance group. I became. I was on a touring dance and a touring dance group around the Midwest. I became a model. I was the first male model. <laughs> um, I I I I started their uh, basketball team, which they are in the usually in the top ten in the NAIA. So I started the basketball team and and their baseball team, and I got to experience what it was like to, to, to have a voice and be seen, you know, and that's what I know about children. Children want to be seen and heard.
0: Sure.
2: And right now we're not seeing and hearing our children. Steve, we're who paid hearts. for your education? That's, that's weird. <laughs> um, <laughs> I am, um, you know, my parents, I'm, I'm still the first one to graduate from college in my family. My parents had no idea. And when I said I wanted to go to college, they had no idea what that meant. I mean, you know, you, you grew up in the neighborhood. You you became a letter carrier or a, a civil servant of some sort or a bartender or a construction worker. That's That were your choices. And I said I wanted to go to college. And I helped my parents fill out the parent confidential, confidential aid statement. We walked down to the bank. They gave us some guidance. I had my parents sign it, and I got a loan. Huh. And uh, they, the school wanted me to come and do remedial classes in the summer. And in my mischievous tenor, I said, screw you. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. And I just showed up on the first day of school and they were like, okay, here he is.
0: Wait, was this and... your first time away from Philly? Yeah. And what was, what uh, was that like? Uh, uh, urban Philly to, uh, to, to yes. Ohio. Um...
2: Uh, this was Columbia, Missouri.
0: Oh, Missouri, and okay.
2: I, yeah, I cried every night for three months. Uh, it was so bizarre. I would go to somebody's house for dinner, and they would have conversations and silverware and napkins, and I'd look at that. I, I always felt like that scene from Pretty Woman where she's in a uh, an upgrade uh, upscale restaurant not knowing what the... Um, Um, Which implement law yeah and and I sit there but the thing that was really remarkable was nobody got screamed at or yelled at nobody got hit at the dinner table that was a common occurrence in my household and my father had hands of steel and when they came and they got you man you knew it and um the um so uh, it was so bizarre being in college, and I couldn't believe it. It was very surreal for me. And again, I, I I lived true to my academic life in my first semester because I was, I was high most of my first semester, and drunk, and I had no money. I mean, I left my house with a suitcase. <laughs> And a hundred and thirty-eight dollars, and thirty-eight dollars for student standby for my airfare, and I had a hundred dollars in my hand, and that was it. And my parents couldn't afford to give me anything, so I was out hustling. I figured out how to hustle extra food. I figured out how to raise, you know, you know raise money, um, work <laughs> for money. I mean, I I did anything, and. Um, and, and, and that first semester, I used whatever disposable income I had to buy a bottle of Ripple or a bottle of Boone's Farm or whatever it was. So my first semester was pretty um, – um, I, I don't remember a whole lot of it. Was it fun? Real, it was, I, I, pardon? Was it fun? Oh, my God. It was It was painfully fun. It was fun <laughs> on the outside but painful inside because I just was numbing myself. And I, real, I went home, um, I, I came off a really big bender through my finals and I went home for Christmas and I realized this is not the pathway. The, the pathway there is the same pathway I would have had in Philadelphia, but different geography. So wherever you go, you're with yourself. I, I realized that after my first semester and then I got real serious and got very pure. And uh, signed up for every hard class I could get to prove to myself that I could do it. And I did really well in chemistry and biology and the things that I'm not good at. But I did well. And I worked hard.
1: And how did you get to teaching?
2: I was going to be a secondary ed PE teacher. Oh. And I went because I was a basketball jock. So I was on that track. And I was teaching, I had to teach a game to all of my colleagues and the Dean of the, the head of the the athletic director was there. And she said to me, this is not how you teach this game. And I said, this is how I'm going to teach this game. (laughs) This is how it's going to make, make it different for everybody. And she insisted. And I, I said, F you and walked out. And I was totally disgusted in my gym clothes. I walked past an early childhood center and I saw all these kids and it touched my heart, all these kids playing in this little house, doing what they were doing. I said, I can do that. And I walked into this, to the early childhood center and talked to Lynn who was head of the department. And I said, I need to get a three hour class. I'd like to take a class here. Help me, tell me what I needed to do. And the first thing she did, she grabbed me by the collar and she said, because you're a jock, you think you're going to get by easy? And she said, no, but here's what you're going to have to do. And she rode me so hard. And I got a a, a C in that class. But I absolutely got an A inside because it was the beginning of the real Concrete work. I was always in my head thinking about how am I going to find myself in this? And I found myself through the children in the classroom. Now, the danger of that, and this is what happens today, this is kind of a fast forward. Teachers go into the classroom and they suck the life out of children that heals their soul. Right. That's a a problem. Right. They do it for
1: themselves,
2: they do it for themselves at the expense of children. And I think about that. And that was an interesting thought for me because that thought was happening in my head in that time. Fortuitously, that was an instinct that I thought, "Hmm, I got to be really careful here. And, um, but immediately I just had connections with kids. And this is what I have learned over time children saw my pain more than I saw my pain. They see right through you and their job is to poke holes and find your hot spots and it gives it gave me an opportunity to heal those hot spots and teachers today don't understand that so the child that pisses you off is the child that you owe a debt of gratitude to because they are helping you find yourself as a teacher and and tomorrow, uh, uh, go ahead tomorrow. I'm
1: sorry. <laughs> no, it's fine. I'm just you know I get excited the way you talk, and so it makes me want to say things. But it 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 makes me understand even more how awareness is so important, and there's so little opportunity for teachers to become aware. You yeah. know, because they they are stressed out with with all the work they've got to do, and and the relationship and so forth. And there's no support group. There's no. There's nothing to, to help them understand this and, and become aware. This is the tragedy, I think. I mean, I would love yes. to facilitate support groups all over the country for yeah. teachers just so you they know. can become aware. Sorry.
2: No, and, and fast forwarding to what the work that Loon does. This is stuff that we, we if there, there, there's a handful of major uh, topics that we cover. First of all, we spend an enormous amount of time asking teachers to understand their why. And to be questioning why. And to go back to being that four-year-old who asks why questions all the time. And finally, let your why be heard. So to ask why about everything. Why am I doing this? Why did I respond this way? Oh, teacher, why did you do this? To begin having curiosity, which has been quelled and squelched. So we spend a lot of time helping teachers renew their – their understanding of why and who they are. Then we talk about a lot about attachment styles and secure attachment styles, avoidant attachment styles, disorganized attachment, resistant attachment. We talk about those and help teachers begin understanding how does their attachment style impede the growth and development or enhance the growth and development of children in your classroom. So understanding your own attachment styles And when, how they morphed for you as a human over time. My attachment style was one of avoidance. I couldn't count on anybody. So I just avoided relationships. And I stayed on the periphery. I had multiple gangs that I hung with because I didn't have to burrow down in any of them because I could float from one one to the other because that was an avoidance style for me. And I kind of picked that out. So we talk about why, We talk about the attachment styles. We talk about temperaments of of people, which is one of those hardwired pieces that goes, goes with us everywhere. So helping teachers understand, you know, what's your temperament style? Are you fearful, feisty, or flexible? And how does your style impede or enhance the style of a child? And we did some data collection on this that we found that early childhood educators had a tendency to be more of a fearful, slow to warm up style, a temperament style. But what happens is when they cross paths with a feisty kid, they don't have the inner resources to do it, to, to know what to do instinctively. So they oppress the child. And you, you, you dovetail that into expulsion in early childhood. I and mean, that's something that I think we've really missed. But a temperament style of a teacher, if there's not a goodness of fit, as Winnicott talked about, goodness of fit, if there's not a goodness of fit and you're not aware of it, that that becomes us and them. And, and the adult will win the short game, but the child wins the long game, which is really losing the long game. So we ask teachers to understand their why attachment temperament and then ace we go with we talk about aces and what's your what's your early trauma or what's your goodness not all teachers are um you know are traumatized so so how's this fit for the teacher who had this kumbaya experience and 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 so you know we that comes with the early recollection of the stories. So, Tamara, you do such beautiful work around and ga- around gathering teachers' stories. And if somebody grew up in this kumbaya life and they're saying, this is what I want, I want children to experience what I had. Mm-hmm. And I think all teachers say that, but some, a lot of them will say, I want children to experience what I had, even if, it, if there's a whooping to it until you put a stake in the ground and understand that that's not okay. And you know, you hear teachers say, well, you know, look at me. Hey, I, you know, i you know, parents say this, when you say, uh, uh, this, uh, uh, corporal punishment is not okay. They say, I grew up with it. Look at me. I'm, I am looking, you know, I am looking, you know, that's- So So, so Steve, uh,
1: you know, I think that um, if we were brought up by an adult, we all need therapy. Um, that's one I, of my th- phrases. And uh, I'm wondering, did you, personal question, did you ever have therapy? Yeah. Oh, okay.
2: Yeah. So, and, um,
1: well, what I mean is, what I wanted to say, and that was the wrong way of putting it, I suppose, is how did you come to understand all this stuff?
2: You know, I, I, it, it's weird. I, I, and again, there is there is a spiritual pathway that I think we all have, whether we know it or not. But I stumbled... Early in my teaching career, I worked with this woman. Her name was Frances Anthony, and her husband, James Anthony, was a world-renowned child and um, adult analyst. Uh, He studied with Anna. He he was not studied. He was Anna Freud's friend. He was Piaget's friend. I mean, they were all like colleagues together. Oh, my goodness. And And I got to work with her, and vicariously, I heard all about this psychodynamic thinking. And I took a class. It wasn't a class. It was two-year intense understanding of the emotional development of children. And it was all, it wasn't about of children. It was about of child. Yeah. And it was about me. Right. And I began through a very interestingly safe, but yet uh, vulnerable uh, process to begin understanding what a mess my life was.
0: When was this in relation to that first time you walked into that classroom with those three-year-olds? Uh, that that happened after. Like how, how long after? Uh, about five years about after. About five years. So for, for that five yeah. years, you, you kind of walk into that classroom and you think, well, this looks interesting. To this time, five years later, when you have this this realization and you start digging deeper, what was what was that first five years like? Um, because I, I'm always curious about how how people evolve over time. And so were you were you making some choices in the classroom that you might not make today? Those kind of things.
2: You know, that, that's really a a, a a great question for me. Um, I knew, but I, I I knew intuitively that. Uh, abuse begets abuse okay and I, I walked into the classroom and I was so concerned about that 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 ugly head rearing and I so what I was as a classroom teacher I was a mess mm-hmm. I was very permissive and I had no discipline in my classroom in discipline in my terms I mean, there was no, it wasn't about modified behavior, but there was no discipline. I mean, I wasn't disciplined enough. I didn't have discipline because I was always beaten to submission, uh, whether it was in education or in my family of, of origin. So it was and, punishment versus discipline. Yeah. And, and, but I knew something was not right about it. And, and Jeff, this is, I, I always knew something was not right. And, and I couldn't put my finger on it. And I kept every, every time I walked into the classroom, it was a, uh, a step towards uh, understanding, you know, I'm still working on healing. I'm still working on healing. I, and uh, it just, I, 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 anyway, so every, every day in the classroom it was, and I realized what a mess. And I was not uh, helping children. I was creating the same beast that was created in me through, through uh, punishment because kids do need emotional safety wow. and limits and boundaries and clarity and somebody who could hold their souls. I couldn't do that. I, I was empathizing, but I was also sympathizing, not just with children, but with myself. So empathy got into the pathology of sympathy. <laughs> And so I was really struggling with this. And, and there, were, there was a moment in time when I had a little boy, a little three-year-old look at me, and I felt like the emperor's new clothes. And I remember this kid so clear. He looked at me, and I felt like I had no clothes on. And he saw right into my heart. And I was like, oh, my God, how did he do this? What just happened? And my regret is he saw my pain. I know he saw my pain, but I couldn't see his pain. So I have that's a regret. That's a that's an amend that I have to make over time because I I know where this kid is. But
1: I think I think you've made it about a thousand million times over that amend.
2: Well, Tamara, I so appreciate that. You know, I, I live with that that world of if it doesn't really, really hurt, it doesn't help. And that's so masochistic. And we we. You know, us in that traumatized world have a tendency to go down that pathway. That's been a big conversation theme for me this week ah. um, around uh, racial and social justice. Um, and my, my, my friend Peaches is, is like, Steve, ease up on yourself. I mean, give yourself Self- a break.
1: Self-compassion. I wrote yeah. an article about that. I'll send it to you.
2: I, I don't do self-compassion very well. For others, I can
1: well, we need to meet it. for a coffee. We need to meet for yeah. a coffee.
2: <laughs> you know, we teach what we need to learn.
1: I know. I know. But you, you know? need also to give yourself a break. Uh,
2: so, so, Jeff, so that first five years was really turbulent, but I couldn't let it go. I mean, I just couldn't let it go. It was then a, a passion that I had to come to. And it was pa- I was passionate in so many different levels for it because I really started to begin seeing heartbroken children mm. and my first year teaching, there was this little girl that I knew something was wrong. I just knew it and I couldn't figure it out. And the woman I worked with was a beast. And she kept saying, Oh, just like act like a man. I was like, okay, what's that look like? Help me because <laughs> help me figure this out. You know, I play basketball. I, I fight. I, I I've done all that. Is that manly? uh, yeah. And but I found that there was another side of masculinity, which is this beautiful
0: tenderness. Had, had you were were you like literally for discovering this for the first time? Yeah. And how old were you?
2: Uh, probably twenty
0: one, twenty two. That's a that's a long time to go with now, knowing that there's that other side to dude ness, huh?
2: Well, I think it, was, it, it, I think it hit my prefrontal cortex. I think I felt it. I mean, as a basketball player, I, I, here's a great example of how ACE's uh, uh, early trauma has really impacted me. I was really, I had incredible court sense. I mean, I could read the court and I could throw all those passes. And I realized as I was on this journey that I knew court so well, because I always knew how to anticipate where the next punch was coming from. So I could read the floor, I could read the feelings in in an environment that were toxic, and getting snuffed or getting the ball taken away was shame. So I knew that I had to get rid of it. However it was, I could get rid of it. And I was really successful at it. I could read the baseball diamond as a catcher. I could read. I had incredible peripheral vision. But all of those things, that sense, came out of trauma. It came out of the hypervigilance of not knowing when I was going to get my head kicked in. And when I got into a fight fight, I was really smart. I knew how not to get hurt. And I knew how to dive into somebody without getting hurt. And to make it look good. Uh, so I just, you know, th- that that hypervigilance that comes out of early trauma served me well. And With young children too?
0: Has yeah, it served did, did, re- did, reading, did reading the court and reading the field... Uh, translate to reading the classroom at some point. Oh,
2: my gosh. And that's what in those first five years I saw I was reading. I didn't like what I was reading. It It was not the fast break. It was not an organized fast break. It was chaos. As I became a much more savvier teacher, my classrooms were probably from the outside looking in, looked more chaotic, but they were much more disciplined. And kids got to think and innovate safely knowing that if they needed help, that I could be there for them. That was a big difference. I don't think my classrooms changed from the outside looking in, but certainly from the inside looking out. And so I, I see kids that I had when they were three, and they're 43, 44-ish, and they still remember being in my classroom as a three-year-old. Something happened. There was a le- oops. There was a legacy there, and I do think the legacy was a, a legacy of 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 relationship. But they saw the pain, and there was a relate. There was a uh, a reciprocity that occurred. So you,
1: you know, Steve, I so appreciate how you're sharing yourself here today. Um, I mean, I've known you a long time, but I haven't heard these stories like this, and um, I really appreciate it. It's, it's, oh, thank you. It's, it's also, I think, very good for teachers to hear that, you know, this is how if we allow ourselves to open ourselves up to pain, it's actually very healing. It's, right. it's not a bad thing, even though it seems like it's going to hurt so bad.
2: Yeah, you know, that's the understanding of the why when we, we when we when we work with teachers, uh, Jeff, we use this Jahari window. I don't know if you're familiar with the Jahari window, but it's these four quadrants. There's your public self, which is all your Facebook stuff, whatever everybody sees about you and you see about yourself. Then there are these blind spots. It's what others see in you that you don't see. And then the, the third quadrant is the hidden self. That's what I know about me that nobody else knows. That's where my the conversations were about being uh, physically and sexually abused occurred. And I held those there for a long time. But when I started to own that and seep it out and become, make it a more public understanding, it had no more power over me. It still has some power because it drives, but I'm still in that healing process. Uh, and then there's the unconscious quadrant, which enables once how we see this is when you understand your blind spots and you're willingly vulnerable to have others talk with you about your blind spots that you don't see. And you disclose, you find a way to disclose your hidden self, whether it's taking it from, from that space to have, have the conversation with yourself, even looking in the mirror at it. Gives it a uh, gives you a little sense of freedom and then the unconscious the, the early recollections have a safe place to go. But if we're spending so much time hiding the the, the the abuse we don't we won't see the other goodnesses. And there are other goodnesses. So when we talk with teachers and teach teachers, we're helping them understand, their blind spots and their hidden selves so they can hold themselves and hold their souls of, of all the other goodnesses. So they can see who were the, who were the, um, who developed the beautiful relationships that supported them through turbulent times or through additional loving times.
1: So, and they still stay with you, those teachers?
2: Do they stay? Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> they mean, don't uh,
1: run away. Oh my gosh, I don't want to do this.
2: No. And, and what we have done. So I'm going to, as you can see, is this making sense to you? Oh yeah. yeah okay. Is- so you can see okay. some of the pathway and, and if I go into today's pathway, so I've spent all these years thinking about it when somebody said, how did Loom start? It's like, Oh shit. <laughs> you know. Okay. Let me, let me start here. <laughs> because everything that we're doing for Loom really came out of pieces along the journey, and and I can feel how I'm going to say successful, whatever that looks like. I am with in the space of early childhood, and the space of being a a, a parent and a spouse, how all those things shaped up that were all shaped by this. And we talk about, you know, we know that, we know that the majority of the brain architecture happens in the first five years of life. We know that that's again, uh, unknown. We know that what happens early can last a lifetime. We know that. We also know that all behavior has meaning and that's really critical for us because all behavior has meaning not just the child behavior, but the teacher behavior. And so we, we, we challenge teachers on that. So, you know, so what, what do you think, where do you think that came from? You know, and we challenge teachers. All behavior has meaning. It's you just don't do it just to do it. And so all behavior has meaning. And if we believe those things, we now can understand that if we really wanna change society, that we can make a deep impact on society in the first five years of life, we can change the trajectory for children. It's not a—that's a generation based on what the research and what the uh, uh, the research in emotional development of children. You know, I don't—I don't have to take the development past five because the hiccups that occur, you know, you have a parent tantrum, and you know that's a two-year-old. And they're emotionally too. They're not thirty six. They're not twenty two. They are emotionally two in that moment. And the strategies that are needed in those moments, if I want to use the word strategy, are strategies we would use to help a two year old. <laughs> and and throughout and so when we are engaged with adults, we are de- engaged with their child all the time. And we build all these masks and all these. Um, Uh, Executive functioning skills that we talk about, Uh, but the executive functioning skills are all, all founded on the emotional development of children, of your child. So all the stuff that we're talking about, the prefrontal cortex, if you map it back, it goes to the root of your own emotional development. Wow. How we see the world.
0: So, so this is why if I'm having a rough day, if I play with some Play-Doh, have a snack and take a nap, everything is always better.
2: Yep. It's regression. <laughs> and we don't talk about regression. And we don't talk about transference. And I know, Tamar, you've talked about transference. That, that, that is an that is untalked about concept in the field of early childhood. Right. And that's, that's going to be one of our, our, our movements uh, going forward.
1: Well, I do wish you would write a memoir I really do and mm-hmm. maybe when this podcast comes out you can listen to it and just type it out and yeah, make yeah, we're a recording
0: memoir. the memoir right here
1: <laughs> yeah uh-huh. it's a very interesting story that you tell Steve that I'm sure will relate to a lot of people yeah. I, I know that you have to go soon so are we going to maybe think of doing a, a, another one or well
0: oh, we 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 Steve can you join us for another recording because we're 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 barely we're barely into your journey so far, aren't we? Um,
2: Oh yeah. I mean, again, I I live in the world of stories and boy, did I bypass a bunch of stories that were just hilarious. (laughs) Well, for, so, for, but anyway, I mean, I, whatever you guys want, it's
0: perfect. Listeners, fun. listeners, for just for time reasons, uh, because people's schedules, I think we're going to pull this episode to a close. But I want to pick up with Steve in a future recording, part two of Steve, where we where we move f- from his journey. Well, he we're we're into a couple years of of teaching on in in in, the, in terms of his story, and I'd like to pick up in in a, in a future recording where we where we left off there, and uh, and get to where you are today with the with the beard and the hat and the scarf and (laughs) and all the amazing research and work that you're doing helping prepare people to work with this in this field um that sound good sounds wonderful so as we wrap up this episode any final thoughts tomorrow on on what we've unpacked with steve Oh well,
1: you know, I started off by saying that if I was allowed to, I would be in love with him, and uh, phew, now it's just been enhanced. enhanced. <laughs> I'm just totally besotted.
2: Well, you are you. You know, it. You are a soulmate, and I think about you a lot. We don't have to talk a whole lot, but you are a soulmate. <laughs>
0: Well, well, I got to say, I'm I'm starting to fall in love too. So, uh, (laughs) be a weird conversation with my wife later on today. Uh,
2: But Jeff, we don't use that word enough. We don't use the word love enough. Love,
0: no, we don't. And and from what I've heard, the hour plus that we've talked with you, you you love this work, huh?
2: Oh, it's it's my saving grace. It's. You know, it's it's, it's uh, enabling me to say to my father, "Thank you for being such a son of a bitch." <laughs> because no, Barbara, it has it.
1: Barbara Bowman has always said that uh, every child needs somebody to fall in love with them.
2: Yeah, we we need love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and our do te- teachers have the capacity? to allow themselves to fall in love with children, not just love children, to fall in love with right.
0: children. Right, right. Do, do they need to love themselves before they can do that, or is that all happened at the same time? It would help.
2: Yeah, I, I said you have to learn how to receive love before you can give love, or you have to learn how to receive joy before you can give joy. We yeah. think we can, but are we giving the authentic joy? I, I Oh, God, there's a
0: whole nother And and the whole thing of loneliness that we're seeing.
1: Yes, yes.
0: (laughs) Hey, (laughs) listeners, we'll be back with Steve in a future episode where we're going to talk about love and loneliness and all things early learning as we continue his journey. Thanks for listening to Early Learning Journeys. We'll be back soon with another episode. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye.